Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. All right, everybody, I'm, I'm sincerely excited about what's going to happen, y'all. Y'all hang tight. We've got an amazing professional here who's got a powerful personal story, one that I relate to, and honestly, all of us can on some level. So I just need you to come into this open mind, open ears, open heart today, and just take what you need to take today, but recognize the courage of who you're about to hear. And who you're about to hear is Roxanne McDonald. Let me tell you about her. She's a nationally certified recovery coach, nationally certified intervention professional. She's a registered drug and alcohol counselor. She has over 23 years of experience working with high-risk substance use disorders, many of them duly diagnosed. She excels at building strong therapeutic rapport with clients. She's a recovery specialist driven to support and assist clients in achieving their therapeutic goals using motivational interviewing, active listening, compassion, and positive reinforcement. She has 23 years of continuous sobriety and two decades of experience helping people recover in jails, treatment centers, and in recovery programs. She also has 16 years of experience working with families who are affected by addiction and also people who are a part of Al-Anon. She's worked four years as a guardian ad litem in the North Carolina court system. Currently, she's coaching, she's facilitating a treatment center, she's doing case management, and she's doing interventions in private pr- practice. So Roxanne, that's an impressive resume. You're doing so much for the recovery community. So let me just thank you for that, that you're helping so many people to know the beauty of sobriety that you and I know today. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. Um, I was taught that it is a uh, an honor to give back and um, what was so freely given to me That's right. um, and to help families and those that suffer with substance use disorder. So yeah, again, absolutely. thanks for having me here today. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm, I'm just glad that our Flip Your Lid audience is going to get to be a, a part of something that, not that I take for granted, but, you know, it's, it's amazing to live in Charlotte and have over 370 AA meetings a week available and that we get to hear hardcore stories. We get to see people recover. We get to see miracles. We get to see families restored. We get to see families not be restored, but people still stay sober. We get to see it all. And so this audience might not be as familiar with that type of, of atmosphere that you and I just thrive in. And so I think you're going to bring something really special today. I hope so. Yeah, I know you are. So, but our paths have crossed. We know some of the same crazy people. So here we are. And so I just want you to share a little bit about your professional life and then go into what event in your life flipped your lid that got you to where you are today. So, um, I've been working um, with folks who suffer from substance use disorder for, oh gosh, you know, 23 years, I would say, Um, um, as you mentioned in treatment centers, jails, um, in 12-step fellowships, Um, started out with substance use disorder, um, and I did that for decades. Um, and I did that in the private sector. And then when I went to work in a treatment center, um, I just, every day I heard, well, the, um, the identified patient was doing just fine until they called home. And I heard that enough times. And then I realized that the loved ones, the family members of the person suffering, um, that they were also suffering. Mm -hmm. And, um, And what I realized was, is that the person, the identified patient, they're usually covered up in services, right? They have whole treatment teams to take care of them, but the loved ones are suffering and they're at home and, and, um, and I realized that they didn't really have any resources. Now I had started um, some 12 step fellowships. Gosh, I bet I started some Al-Anon meetings here in Charlotte 15 years ago. Um. And so I had done that, but I had never helped them uh, on a professional level. So I switched the focus and it's not 
um, entirely, but I'd probably say maybe a third, half of my practice is working with family members and loved ones um, affected by substance use disorder and um, giving them an opportunity to really process the impact um, that the disease has had on them and Mm -hmm. their own disease, frankly. You know, we know about the parallel process in the brain Mm -hmm. now. Um, So I do that. I do that. I coach uh, family members. I do case management with family members. um, And I really like uh, working with that side of the family as well. Um, because they suffer too. Um, oh, absolutely. It looks different. Um, it looks different, um, but make no mistake, it is it is suffering. Absolutely. And so being able to uh, help people get healthy so that when their loved ones come home, because what we know is, is that if someone with a substance use disorder comes home to a family that's been treated, they have a 50% greater chance of having a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've ever been that person in a rehab who is changing everything um, so that they can see a five to seven percent chance of recovery, (laughs) I mean, when you realize that, you know, just the family pitching in can increase it by 50 percent, that's really dramatic. So I'm really proud to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, our common person is Bob Martin. Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, I've known his crazy self for a really long time, and I had the privilege of being one of the co-founders, one of the few people who started Mercy Horizons Intensive Outpatient Program, their IOP program. Yeah, and so very excited about that. And this is years and years ago, and and so Bob was a part of that, and myself and a couple other people were a part of it. And so we had the family program, and so on family night. Family members are in one room, and us alcoholics addicts were in the other room. And the laughter that came from the alcoholics addicts room was always a lot. From the family room, none. Every week, every time, none. Their pain was so deep. They felt so much more powerless. It was so much harder to stand by and watch than to actually be the one who's actually doing the drinking. And so I 100% agree with what you're saying. Their, their suffering is tremendous. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. say, at least I had a blackout. At least I got high for a little while. Mm-hmm. What did my loved ones get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. So I'm so glad you're in the field today and what you're doing. Can you share what flipped your lid that got you so dedicated to substance addiction recovery? Well, I think like most people who suffer with a substance use disorder, Um, you know, I got here out of, um, pain and trauma Mm -hmm. and, um, that started for me. I grew up um, from Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, really? Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I grew up in Anchorage and I grew up in an alcoholic home. And when Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I think back on my childhood, um, the very first thing that happens is I get this pit in my stomach. My stomach starts to hurt a little yeah. bit, and um, and I just remember walking up the up the driveway to the house with that pit in my stomach, just going uh, afraid because I never knew what I was coming home to. Yeah. Um. So I I grew up in um in alcoholism, and um, I think like most uh, children of alcoholics, I grew up and I said I will never be by I will mm. never be like my right. Dad. And mm-hmm. uh, my experience is, is that you either turn out exactly like them <laughs> or you go the polar opposite. Polar opposite. Yes, yes. completely. Completely. Like no metal ground yes. there. None. There's no grace and mercy. Not for that. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, um, and I too was, um, I look back on it now and I was drinking alcoholically by the age. I was a daily drinker by 19. Mm-hmm. By 19, I was a daily drinker. And um, so what happened was my disease progressed over time. And, um, you know, I know a lot of folks, when they tell this kind of a story, they have this long agonizing bottom mm-hmm. that they talk about. Um, and it's just not how it happened for me. The way that it happened for me was uh, June 18th, 1997. 
uh, I was driving home uh, and I was driving home from the bar. Um, my daughter had gone on vacation. Um, so I was a single mother at that time and um, I had no restraints on my drinking. So I went out mm. uh, after work and I went to the bar and I drank the way I like to drink and um, make no mistake. The way I like to drink is like a pig. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I drank uh, till the wheels fall off. Uh, that's just, you know, I drank for the effects of alcohol. Mm-hmm. I always drank for the effects of alcohol and, and I went out um, and I drank the way I like to drink and, and I got behind the wheel of a car and, you know, every part of me wants to lie to you and tell mm. you that that was an unusual occurrence, but that just wouldn't be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. The honest truth is I was a drunk driver, mm-hmm. was always a drunk driver. Yeah. And, um, and I went out, it was June 18th, 1997. And I drank the way I like to drink. And then I got behind the wheel of a car and, um, and, uh, <clears throat> what I remember is a huge impact and a flash of white light. And, mm. um, and then I remember being airborne. I remember being completely, I remember just being airborne. And then, and then I just remember being crushed beyond belief and, and um, somehow, some way I was able to pull myself free of that wreckage. And um, I don't know how, uh, Cause I was so crushed. I couldn't even inhale. I couldn't inflate my lungs. Right. And uh, I pulled myself free of the wreckage and I had taken a blow to the head so hard that my uh, teeth uh, came through my face oh, my and I had to grab my face and just tear oh. them off my jaw so I could unlock my jaw. Cause it was giving me that fight or flight response. And, um, and uh, next thing I know the police were there and they took me to jail hmm. And, um, so, um, I was processed and, um, and I passed out and, and, uh, in this receiving cell was a television and, um, and I heard my name and it woke me up and I looked up at the television and there on the television, I saw my car wrapped around a telephone pole and the newscaster said, uh, that Roxanne uh, H. of Escondido, California, had hit and killed a 32-year-old bicyclist. Wow. So, so Roxanne, this is how you found out why you were being arrested by the time you're a little bit more cognitive, a little bit more lucid, and you found out that you had killed someone else on a TV yes. while you're in jail. Yes. Wow. And I, you know, I can never explain to you or any other human being what that moment was like yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, no but words. what I know is this, is that um, you'll never find out if you don't pick up that first drink or that first drug. Yeah, that's, that's such a powerful, beautiful statement. Powerful, beautiful statement. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I know this is about, you know, you honoring the person who you killed their life, their family, how that impacted, understand that. And that, but you had to deal with your own trauma, your own way to bring in this new truth that your life just completely changed. Right? I know it's easy if people say, well, at least you had a life, but that doesn't help you. You had to completely readjust because none of us who drink alcoholically set out to hurt someone else. It happens, but it's not, it's never why I started drinking. I just wanted my own pain to stop. I didn't. I never knew I was going to hurt somebody else. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, ooh, this is going to go deep. Um, so, yeah, I would torture myself with that for years. Um, mm-hmm. I suffered from massive depressions, as you can imagine, sure. for years. Um, that story, uh, that incident, took me to a maximum security death row penitentiary. Mm. Um, I didn't, you know, everyone wants to think that you get help. I really didn't get any. I think I got to see a psychiatrist once. I doubt there were psychiatrists. All I think about is probably psychologist. Right. Uh, One time. And honestly, and I still to this day remember what he said to me. And what he said to me was, um, if this had happened to your friend, what would you say to your friend? 
um, because I, I was, um, beating myself up. I just could not forgive myself for such an act. And, um, and, um, and when I, if I'm able to look at that in the third person, as if somebody else had done it, I would be able to look at you or her or Mm -hmm. him and say, well, I understand how you didn't get in your car that night with um, any um, malice or um, uh, intention in your heart Mm -hmm. um, that it was an accident. And, Mm -hmm. um, but it would take me, it would take me years to, to really be able to process that and, and not torture myself. And um, so you talk about, you know, reconnecting uh, with yourself. And, and I, I would have to say that, um, you know, I put the plug in the jug, oh my gosh, 23 years ago, you mm-hmm. know, my, my real journey um, to reconnecting with myself and connecting to God mm-hmm. um, has been through self-forgiveness. And um, yeah. And that's been a 23 year journey for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the way that I have done that is by helping others is by, um, is by helping other people um, get clean, get sober and help other families from Mm -hmm. suffering. Yeah, no, that's absolutely resilience. It's beautiful. It's God taking something tragic and making it good and you being such a beautiful vessel. So the key word you said was Mm self-forgiveness and the power of that and how difficult it is. I mean, most of our listeners can think of a time they said one thing to somebody that was insensitive and they will perseverate on it for weeks and play it over and over again, which they've done it differently. And you're talking that there's somebody now not on the earth Mm-hmm. as a result of your alcoholism. And so can you tell me a little bit about how long you had to be in prison? Did self-forgiveness start then? Did you have to get released from prison and not be reminded of it constantly for the self-forgiveness to start? So um, this was many years ago before they had the kind of sentences that they do now. Um, and I had no prior. So my sentence was 16 months um, I tried to get help within the, uh, walls of the institution. Mm-hmm. It would be, it was, you had, it was considered a privilege and not a right to be able to attend a 12 step meeting. And, um, the problem with that is to have a, a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to have a spot in school or a job. Well, there were a hundred percent over capacity, so that meant half the people didn't have a, a job or a place in school. So they couldn't have this right, right. or this privilege. Yeah. And um, so I wouldn't get, I wouldn't um, go to my first uh, 12 step meeting for uh, it was like five or six months. And to even get 12 step literature in, it had to come from the world service office. Right. Um, so even being able to uh, get help that way was incredibly difficult. And so um, I just clung to, um, I wrote letters. I had gotten a home group uh, in a 12-step fellowship before I left. And my home group members wrote to me. Um, to this day, I brought a um, service commitment to Charlotte in the year 2005. And I'm, I still am a big proponent. It's called uh, Correspondence and Corrections. Mm. And it's a way for anybody to be yeah. of service to another human being who is in um, is in an institution. And it doesn't have to be a prison. It could be a hospital environment. Right. Uh, this particular one is uh, for those who are incarcerated. And, um, and so uh, I started out where I just had letters from, um, you know, other people with substance use disorders uh, that would write to me because I needed the message of hope. Yeah, that's I was right. living in an, uh, an environment that was rage and hate and mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had been told in the 12-step fellowship that I needed to find a higher power. Mm. Um, but I have to tell you, when you are in this abyss of, of violence, it's very hard to feel God. And, yeah. um, and I would just walk the prison yard and I would, <laughs> this is so alcoholic, you're going to love this. 
And I would just walk the prison yard and I would say, God, if you're there, just shake that tree. Right. Right. And of course, you know, if the wind blew, I'd be like, okay, God, if that's you, shake <laughs> right. it again. Because, <laughs> of you know. course. Yeah, I love it. And, um, and so here I am searching, uh, seeking and searching uh, for a higher power in a place that was felt. Mm. Uh, it was just hate and yeah. um and uh, and it, and I just I was terrified all the time. Like you're in a trauma response consistently. Oh, I had I had horrible PTSD. Oh, absolutely. Um, just terrible, untreated PTSD and depression for years. Yeah. Um. So that's really where the journey started, and I remember it was the one year at the uh, one year anniversary, and um, and I went to uh, the prison church. And I was sitting in the back and, um, and a woman at the front, she started singing Mm -hmm. and I looked up and I remember her saying just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of faith. And, and she was singing that. And it really was a spiritual experience for me because I realized in that moment, all I had to have was just a little bit of faith that if I worked the um, 12 steps um, to the best of my ability, if I cleaned, if I trusted in God, cleaned house and helped others, Mm -hmm. that there was hope for me. Yeah. And that there was a chance that my life would, um, would be redeemed. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I called home. My mom was worried about me that day. And when she answered the phone, she was crying. And I said, Mama, what's the matter? And she said, Honey, hospice is here. Your grandmother's dying. Mm. And, um, you know, when I was out there drinking and doing the things I did, I knew my grandmother was sick. But, you know, you're always going to call them on the weekend. And then right. the weekend comes and and you don't call. And you're always mm-hmm. going to do it next week and right. the next week. And, and, uh, and here, she, here it was, it was the end. She was in hospice. And, um, and my mom would tell me she would bring a calendar to her bedside. And every day they would make a, an X. And my grandmother um, would try. And she, uh, she tried to make it until I would come home. Yeah. But sadly, she did not make it. Um, but I, um, I just put one foot in front of the other, you know, one day at a time. I just want to pause there because it's just so powerful and, you know, it's just hard to get sober. It, it, it just is. And there's so much to that and there's so much trauma already happening. There's so much disconnection from self that leads to us drinking alcoholically in the first place. And for you to try to find a way to reconnect to yourself, you can't even get to a meeting. I don't know if people understand and you do more than I do. Um, but I, I was an officer for a certain amount of time. The mm. amount of violence and mm. normalcy in the violence in prisons. Like you can never, you can never rest. Mm-mm. Right. And Not we do ever. our best. We do our best when we're connected. It's the we of the program. It's being able to be relaxed and hear new information. And you can't even do that. And and you're hanging on to these powerful words of a little bit of faith mm-hmm. and knowing that if you work the steps and clean house and trust God, that you get to be redeemed and be a vessel. Mm-hmm. Like that's hard to do sitting in your 5,000 square foot house in Ballantyne, right? But you did it in prison. The strength of that, the way you had to rely on, on your higher power, that's, that's such testimony. Yeah, you say rely. Boy, it didn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you know, honestly, um, I just took all the suggestions. And so um, they would say, pray to something that you don't know is there. And um, and I didn't know that something was there. Mm-hmm. And I remember that the way that I started, because um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a higher power. Um, and so I started, I just wrote out a list um, I remember writing a letter of everything I wanted in a best friend. And I wanted someone that, um, that loved me unconditionally. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Someone that would always support me. Mm. Somebody who wanted the best for me. 
um, and uh, and someone funny. And um, and I just want to caution everybody on that one. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> too late for me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, careful yeah. what you wish for. Um, yeah, right, right, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, my um, and and that literally was how I started. Was this list of everything I wanted in a best friend, and mm. and I would literally just pray to that um, every night, and they would just tell me, um, and and I, as I would just like to tell all our listeners, which is just believe that I believe. Yeah, and just if you don't have a higher power to call your own, you know, you're welcome to use mine until you find mm-hmm. one of your own because yeah. mine, mine is, mine's a rock star. Let me just say right now. Yeah. Yeah. I got a rock star. Right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got rock star higher power who um, was able to do for me things I couldn't do for myself really mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, th- I think one of the privileges of me being raised in AA and not being raised in the church is that, I got told the same thing you get told probably, and I had permission to have a blank piece of paper and decide. Mm-hmm. And so initially, it got looked like Oprah. And then I was like, well, that's restrictive. And so then it was just had to be open hands. Just the idea that someone's going to welcome me because I couldn't fathom somebody wanting me there, welcoming me, inviting me. Right. And that it was that simple of a beginning. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't complex. Like it couldn't be. It couldn't be. There's such a beauty in it when we can make it that simple and then it can be added to, deleted, whatever later. But the fact that you wrote out who you want your best friend to be, mm-hmm. that's so personal. Mm-hmm. That's so personal that it has more power than someone else telling you who God is. Yeah. And, you know, I actually remember the very first time um, that I felt the presence of God. Um, I was in my cell and, um, and I was alone and I, and that never happens. I don't yeah. know how that happened. Right. Uh, it was completely unusual. And, um, and I was, uh, in my bunk and I was alone and, um, and it's so loud. Um, mm-hmm. to this day, I'm still very auditory sensitive Sure. and, um, and it's the lights are so bright and, um, mm-hmm. and it's loud and, um, and, I just remember being overcome with a sense of compassion for all these women. Mm. And let me say right now, I did time with some women that had done some very bad things. Right. And, um, and I'd also like to say that um, I don't know what the percentage is. I believe it at the time it was somewhere in the nineties uh, 90 some odd percent had all per- committed their crimes either under the influence of mm-hmm. some sort of drug or alcohol mm-hmm. or was directly related to mental health yep. issues. Yep. It's, and, it's still the same uh, statistic. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just remember for the first time, I just was overcome with this sense of compassion for all these women and, um, and what they had been through. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I still remember that. I still yeah. remember that to this day. Yeah, that's that's so well said and just just beautiful to get to a place of compassion. And it's compassion towards people that that can be a threat to you and were a threat. And again, we're you're you're young in this situation. Mm-hmm. And like I don't know how your body adjusts. I don't know how you physiologically and psychologically adjust to hanging out at home or hanging out in a bar, being in your own apartment, to now all of a sudden you have no choice of who's around you, who's around you when you go to the bathroom, who you shower around, if you can get to a meeting or not. It's just drastic. It was. I, um, I didn't have any kind of a background either that would have given me an introduction to what I was in store right. for. Right. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was yeah. uh hypervigilant. I was on hypervigilant alert the entire mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would think even once you were released, I don't know how much trauma work you had to do in order to 
to have a sense of being able to relax for a second. And I, my guess is even where you sit and what you do today has a lot to do with taking care of yourself and, and feeling like you can be protective and have an exit. I remember when I got out, um, cause you just try and fake everything, right. As you're mm-hmm. getting reacclimated back into society. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember, um, I ate with my hands because we don't get, I mean, you don't get silverware. People right. get, people get stabbed with right. silverware. Right. Um, yep. So, you know, you eat with your hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're lucky, you might get one of those huge, big plastic spoons at best. Um, but I remember when I got out, I would just eat, I ate a lot of hamburgers because yeah. I didn't want people to see that I, I could even eat with right. silverware. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's profound. That's so mm-hmm. profound. Mm-hmm. What's, what's been the biggest surprise for you as you've gone through your journey and been sober? Because part of what happens for any of us, much less for someone who's been through what you've been through, is being able to receive the blessings, letting things get better, knowing we're worthy of, getting, of things getting better. What's that been like for you? That has been a very long road is what that has been. That has been a very, very long road. Um, I would say that the beginning of that happened. I remember one day there was this um, huge, it was in prison. There was this huge crowd of women and um, I mean, a big crowd, um, uh, but there was no bullets flying, no batons flying. So I was like, what's going on? And the way I had managed to survive was by being invisible, frankly. Um, that's just mm-hmm. as honest as I can mm-hmm. be. I just called no attention to myself. Right. Sure. So I didn't dare go see what happened. Um, so I just stood outside on the fringes for the longest time. And, um, and then as the day wore on, um, the crowd got smaller and smaller and dispersed until at the very end of the day, there was just two lifers and, um, there was two lifers left and they had their face pressed to the glass, to the window. Um, and mind you, they have found a way to take everything away from you, including mother nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, outside of this window is just literally miles of just porn gravel and right outside of the window a baby bunny had made a nest right outside of the window. Oh, wow. And, um, and that's what had taken the attention of hundreds and hundreds of criminals of women throughout the day. And, yeah. and I remember standing next to this uh, lifer named Miss Annie, who is, uh, who died behind the walls. Mm. And, uh, and I remember Miss Annie saying, remember her looking up and saying, thank you, God. Thank you for showing mm. me that. Wow. And, uh, you know, Miss Annie had missed everything. She had missed her children being raised. She'd missed the birth of her her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. She literally had missed an entire lifetime. And um, and I knew with the, uh, with the 12 steps that I had a chance. And yeah. um, it was one of those moments where the pain was, the pain was so great. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that I would die. I knew that I would die. Um, the 12 steps was my way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my way out of prison. Uh, I knew that the 12 steps was my way out. Um, and I didn't want my legacy to be that I was the one who had killed somebody. Yeah. And, um, and I started working the 12 steps and I started working the 12 steps through the mail with a sponsor and, and I didn't have anything. She would send me pieces of paper and she would put a smiley face on it. And she would say, uh, Jesus loves you. And I would erase it. And then I would do my step work on that paper and then mail it back. Uh, and I can remember doing my four step and, um, and I'd run out. I didn't, I didn't even have so much as a piece of paper. And I got a roll, you know, they have those toilet paper rolls that have a wrapper on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing my four step wow, um, on the, on the toilet paper roll wow. and, um, uh. and mailing it back to her. And, um, because I was told that if I took the 12 steps that I would change. Yeah. And, that- um, and that, um, 
I knew with God I could do anything. I knew with God and the, the 12 steps I had a chance. Yeah. And uh, and so I worked the the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and okay. um, I um, worked the 12 steps and, uh, and I had worked the steps before I got out of prison. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so my journey really began in a 12-step fellowship. And for me... The self-forgiveness. I was taught that if you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I tell my clients today, you know, it's really hard to beat yourself up at the end of the day when you put your head on the pillow if you've done all the right things. Mm-hmm. And so if you take the next right action, what I know is, is you will always, always get the right result. Yeah. And so um, I started out with helping other people. And, um, you know, in the beginning, I felt like I didn't have anything to give. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe helping somebody else might have been just calling you today and saying, how are you? Right. And, um, and just um, maybe being um, a good listener, maybe that was the best I could do. Mm-hmm. And that was a beginning, you know, that was a beginning mm-hmm. for me. And then I would go on to sponsor and help other people. Um, then I would take it, you know, it's funny. I um, I took, uh, it was the longest held, I held the, the longest badge in Mecklenburg County. I took um, 12-step fellowship into the uh, Mecklenburg County Jail for eight years. Um, Pre-COVID, um, I was also a speaker and educator in the drug and alcohol program in the uh, jail. Um, and then, of course, um, because I abandoned a child to go to prison, um, my living amends uh, to my daughter and to and to all the families out there mm-hmm. was that I became a guardian light ad litem for the North Carolina yeah. um, court system, and um, and that was a living amends. Um, my my staying clean and sober is my living amends to the victim, mm-hmm. and um, and um, and helping others achieve sobriety uh, is how. I was able to take such a horrible, awful story Mm -hmm. and make it mean something, make it count for something. Yeah. That's the self-forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So just for our listeners don't know the the four step is possibly one of the hardest steps because you're, you're writing out all the resentments, all the things that you feel like are done against you. What part of you is affected, what your part is in it. It's a lot of, it's a moral inventory of your life and, Many people leave the program once they get to the fourth step because the fifth step is you confessing all of it to God and to yourself and to another human being who listens to every single bit of your sin, shame, whatever you want to call it. It's your whole story, and it's really difficult to do. And majority of us who are doing them are sitting in a meeting, in a AA meetings held in a church or some 12-step program held somewhere and you're, Roxanne, talking about you're scrapping for toilet paper covering to write it out. Like the humility and the beauty of that is tremendous. You know, I was so broken. Yeah. I just was so broken. And um, my sponsor told me that if I was willing um to work a thorough step, if I was willing mm-hmm. um, to tell my story at the podium level, yeah, um, that I would heal. Yeah. And I was so broken, mm-hmm. and I just I needed to heal. I had yeah. the gift of desperation. Yeah, it is a gift. Yeah, mm-hmm. the working the twelve steps is probably one of the biggest gifts, if not the gift, given to me. Because the steps are, you get to, the steps are the purpose to get to the twelfth step, which is having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, and then we carry that message to the alcoholics, and that means we do the work on ourselves first. We don't take care of people in lieu of doing our own work. We do the work. We we cleanse, and then from that place, a place of worth, a place of being renewed, we go out and help other people. And your your ability to do that, Roxanne, is like there. Are, I don't have words for it. It's tremendous. Just your dedication to that, and and eight and nine have to do with the men. She brought up living amends, and that's part of what we do. And some people 
you can't make direct amends to for different reasons. And we find our ways intentionally to make living amends. We don't act like it's okay when it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, hardcore, beautiful, amazing 12-step work. It's, um, it's definitely been a, a long, hard, and a beautiful journey. Yeah. Um, uh, into recovery. Um, you know, there's so many gifts. I could just, could never, I could just never tell you, I could just never tell you all the gifts that come with being clean and sober. I mean, aside from just being able to, uh, restore other families, to be able to help people to stop from suffering. Right. Um, I mean, that's a beautiful gift. Yeah. Um, but the gifts I can remember, um, you know, in the beginning, and like you said, it's really, really hard. I remember sitting in a meeting in the early days and, um, and I was listening to a speaker. It's actually how I would find my, my uh, sponsor, my first sponsor. And, you know, I don't know what that woman said. I just know that for the time that she spoke, I was just transformed. I was taken out of this all this misery and despair. And I was transformed to somewhere. And I, and I know where that place is now. It's called hope. Yeah. Um, it's called a place of hope right. when I was hopeless. Yeah. And, um, and uh, the big book talks about it. And uh, for me, it was as thick as a strand of hair. Mm. And, um, and that's how it started. Literally, it was as thick as a strand of hair um, that if I did this stuff that was suggested of me, um, that I would change. That my life would change. It was inconceivable to me that I would ever have promises and I would ever earn people's love or people's respect or, I mean, none of that stuff was going to come for me. Maybe for someone like you, but nah, not for the stuff that I had done. And, um, and I remember, uh, clearly, uh, one of the, the biggest, um, moments, uh, God's presence that, um, that I had indeed changed. And I remember my daughter, uh, after I got out of prison, um, I had lost my daughter. My, um, my rights to my child were terminated. Mm. Um, as many are that suffer with this disease. And I went back to, uh, I did the things that I had to do and I went back to court and I, I got my custody back. I went through all that and, uh, got my daughter back and, um, was years later. Um, I remember she had a report to do in school. She didn't tell me about it. She had a book report and they had to write a report on who their hero was. And uh, I remember um, her bringing that to me mm. and, um, and telling me who it was that she had written about. And, um, and I was the hero. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I was the hero. Yeah. And, um, I just never saw that coming. I never thought that um, I would ever earn anybody's love Mm -hmm. and respect um, Mm -hmm. back. Um, But for my daughter um, to do that, that was one, it was a really profound moment for me. Um, So beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, And just the, just how children look at things, their ability to forgive. Oh, and it's something. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. I just, I just love that, and that you also did the work to go get her back. Some of us have so much shame; we won't even try to do that. You know, I have been asked so many times over the years, "How did you do it?" Mm-hmm. Um, because you're right. I mean, you and I in um, in this business, we see people give up every day. I mean, yep. every single day. And, um, and I have to say without, I just have to say really was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself yeah. because um, honestly, I just, I didn't, this sounds silly, but I, I mean it. Um, I just didn't know that I could give up. Mm. I just didn't know I could. Um, yeah. I think that if any point in time, anybody had come up to me and just put a hand on my shoulder and said, oh, honey, you've done enough. I think I would have fallen apart at the seams. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, I just, I didn't, I didn't know that I could not give up. I didn't Mm -hmm. know. 
I knew it was hard. I knew getting up and pushing mm-hmm. every day was hard, mm-hmm. but I just didn't know I could stop. It just, it wasn't an option for me. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm so glad so many people, thousands of people were blessed because you kept going. That you, you now get to be the voice of hope. It's amazing. So I know you make a daily living amends to the person on the bicycle. And I think that's beautiful. I'm going to ask this because I know, I know our listeners are thinking this. Has there been any contact with the family? Has a, does the family keep in touch with you? Did any involvement on that level? So um, the answer is yes. Um, first contact was, of course, a letter of amends um, from jail. Um, then I would see the family at sentencing. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly like you see it on television, yeah. uh, where they tell you exactly what you what have done to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, uh, gosh, there's very few people in the whole wide world who know the story. Um, <clears throat> after I got out of prison, I was out of prison, I would say about a year. And, uh, and they drug me back and they put me on trial. And I was put on trial in a civil suit. And uh, um, I was in the courtroom with all the family and I I was on trial for a month and I sat uh, right next to the widow and the family members every day for a month. And, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was a very difficult, uh, very difficult process. It was hard. It was just so hard to see all the lives that I had devastated. Yeah. And, um, and I remember when that trial was over, I just started praying. The courtroom was emptying out and I could feel my anxiety level going up and up and up and up. And I just started praying and I just said, God, please, if there's anything left that I'm supposed to do, I need you to do it for me because honestly, I was literally paralyzed, yeah. physically paralyzed. And, um, and I don't know what happened, but I, I leaned over and I got my token, um, out of my purse and I walked over to the widow and I told her that it was a gift. It was a gift from her husband Mm. and from God. Mm. And, um, that it was my living amends to make that mean something. Yeah. And, uh, and I left, um, I was taught that, um, my side, my footwork was to do the next right thing and to clean my side of the street, but that I wasn't responsible for how it was received, That's right. nor did I have, That's right. <laughs> honestly, the it's strength not, to stand there one right, more right, second. Right. It's, it's none of our business how it gets received, but I can hear you that you just needed to get out as soon as you could. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so I've spent the last 23 years, um, living up to, to what I, um, to what I said. Yeah. And that was not only to staying clean and sober, but to helping others, um, Mm. be clean and sober. And, um, and I have since also run into, uh, members of the defense team. Mm. Um, uh, turns out it was actually watched for some time. And um, and I had somebody from the other side tell me one day, they said, we've been watching you and um, and we know that you're clean and sober. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's so yeah. There's no doubt because of the character change, because of how you carried yourself, what you did for others, that no one can doubt that you are clean and sober today. Yeah. 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 So... If there's someone out there still just struggling, not even necessarily with addiction, but the depression, the the effects of PTSD, and they don't quite know how to have the layer of hope that's been placed over you, what uh, words do you have for them today? Gosh, if I think if I could say anything, it would be reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Just reach out for help. Um, Reaching out for help is, I don't know why it's so hard. Yeah. Um, It's so hard. Um, But what I know my personal experience is, is once I was finally able to do it, the reality is, is those that, um, 
those that I reached out to really extended their hand to me. They made it mm. so easy. Yeah. Um, you know, the resistance and the fight was all right here, right between my two ears. You mm-hmm. know, it was my own head that made things so hard. Right. So I think if I had any words, it would be to please reach out, um, reach out to anybody, reach out to me. Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll have some way to get some contact information right. out. Right. Uh, there are all kinds of resources out there, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a suicide hotline, whether it's calling an intergroup office for a 12-step fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a variety of resources available out there. And what I know is, is um, you don't have to feel the way you're feeling. Yeah. Um, there is help out there. Right. And there's a lot of people just like me that are waiting um, to help you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that as we wrap this up, part of what's so beautiful about you and your story is that, you know, you did what you could. And again, if that's writing on paper, if toilet paper, paper, but it's writing on paper that you did what you could, but you also let people be there and do things for you that you couldn't do. And I think that's just so powerful. You let it be what it needed to be for you so you could get better. So I thank you for that message. Yes, thank you. Um, I am blessed beyond measure. Yeah, yeah. And I hope that others will um, have the privilege of of finding what I have been so blessed to find, and and that you've worked really hard for. And this was I have a lot's been given. You've also worked very very hard. Thank you. So I thank you for that. Will you tell people how to get in touch with you? If there's whether it's a handle on Instagram or Facebook or recover or, or your website, how will people find you if they needed to get get some help? You can find me at RoxanneRecoveryCoach.com. There's a variety of ways. Basically, on social media, you put in Roxanne Recovery Coach, you'll find me. Please reach out. At the very least, perhaps I can connect you to resources. Thank you for being this and for just been a beautiful reminder of of why we why we do what we do why we work so hard i really appreciate it so to all you listeners i know you've heard something really special today and that your lid got flipped and that you've been able to reconnect a little bit more today to who you really are thanks for listening thank you for listening to flip your lid with kim honeycutt please subscribe rate and share You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit ButYourMotherLovesYou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.